CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today, bringing you the news to know for the week of June the 1st. I have roughly six to eight articles. We'll see what we get through. The first one I want to talk about comes out of Healthcare IT News by, from Tammy Lovell, May 29th. COVID-19 has accelerated adoption of non-contact patient monitoring technology. And so I thought, what in the world are they talking about non-contact patient monitoring technology? Because all the patient monitoring technology that I know of is blood pressure cuffs, which touch you, and pulse oximeters, which touch you, and you step on a scale, and those kinds of tools. Well, they're suggesting that there are revenue opportunities in five different areas. So let's just touch on them. And then we'll say if this stuff makes sense to you. So the first one, they think we should be using sound analysis technology for remote monitoring of influenza-like illness for patients based on their cough. So listening to their cough remotely and figuring out what their disease is. Next, video-based non-contact monitoring technology that can diagnose mental stress by detecting physiological and emotional signs such as depression, anger, and restlessness. Next, radar sensor technology that can track respiration and heart rate for symptoms of respiratory diseases such as asthma, COPD, and COVID-19. And next is non-contact sensor-based technology for tracking heart rate, respiratory rate, and blood pressure for individuals, they say for health and fitness, but could be for anything. And the last one they say is we should be improving our telehealth market, which, yeah. So as I look at these, some of them I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. And some of them I'm not convinced. I don't, I'm not 100% sold yet that we're going to be detecting how people are doing from a mood standpoint based on their facial recognition, but perhaps their voice analysis. If you had Alexa or Siri or someone listening in the background to your tone of voice, your mood, your words, your context that these things are being said in, may very well be able to pick up truly on what's going on in your life. That could be interesting. The ability to detect the heart rate and respiratory rate and understand what's going on in your lungs I thought that's a load of garbage who can possibly do that and turns out that's real stuff that exists and so there is a company their name is Binah B-I-N-A-H I'm sure I said that wrong it's Binah.ai and I'm just looking on their website I don't know them I have no relationship with them I'm not promoting their product but I love the fact that their tech sounds really cool and so you watch a they have a minute long video on their website and what they're showing is that they're grabbing through an iPhone just someone looking at it the heart rate respiratory rate pulse ox and they say they'll soon have blood pressure and so I had to look and say well what's the technology behind that and of course they're not going to give away their secret sauce but here's what they say they have award-winning technology that enables the extraction of a large set of vital signs and mental stress measurements based upon the analysis of a video taken with any device equipped with a camera 
such as a smartphone, tablet, kiosk, in-car camera, and many more. Bina.ai's solution applies a unique mix of signal processing and AI technologies combined with a proprietary mathematical back-end processor that analyzes the video taken from the upper cheek skin region of a human face. No video of the eyes is required. So that's what I first thought is, oh, maybe they're grabbing something off the retina. But no, this is off the skin. So right from there, I start thinking, yeah, is there going to be some false readings on this based upon skin temperature and someone who comes in from outside, they were just, it's Minnesota in the winter and it's freezing cold and their cheeks are different colors and all kinds of things related to that. I would love to get one of their doctors on the line and just, just, hey, what is the truth with this? Is it real? And is this the future? It's certainly interesting to know about. I am not suggesting you run out and start buying these things, but it's interesting. Next, Montefiore Health System using tech-to-scale population health management strategies. This one comes out of healthcare finance, and the author is Jeff Lagasse. And I don't know exactly, oh, May 28th, that's when it came out. And so this article was, was this article is about how Montefiore was using an artificial intelligence tool and some algorithms to improve their pop health management strategies. And the article seems to focus in on that the starting point is identifying the right patient. Once a patient with specific needs is identified, they can be enrolled in programs that assess those needs and that point clinicians at personalized care plans. They are leveraging social determinants of health in their assessments to connect people with community resources. And the results they're getting, since implementation, Montefiore has benefited from a 28% overall improvement in quality scores, 6.8% reduction in non-user rates, and 27% higher show rates for office visits. The system also projects a 12% positive impact on readmission rates over the next six months. Of all those numbers, the one that impressed me the most here is the ability to get patients to show up in the office, which if you can identify ahead of time who's not going to show and then implement a plan that gets them to show, there's a return on investment in there. Absolutely, there is value. Oh, by the way, there's a healthcare benefit to them too, coming in and getting stabilized. That's great. I'm not convinced it's the algorithm that's doing that much here. It's their interventions that have to be so valuable. And sure, the algorithm may help you find the right people, not the people who are so sick that no matter what you do, you can't help them, not the people who are so healthy, no matter what you do, it wouldn't impact them, but the people who would benefit. So the next question I want to raise is, how do we collect social determinants of health? Because at least in the healthcare systems I've been in, they're not collected reliably, uniformly, uh, sometimes not well because it's nothing that people really like. I think there's a discomfort perhaps when you're asking people, do they have food insecurity? Do they have housing insecurity? Are they in a violent relationship? These are very touchy subjects that are hard without training for people to go and ask. I also know that people are busy. So you would hope that this stuff was collected in the primary care clinic, but that medical assistant's trying to room the patient in five minutes. The doctor's trying to see that patient and get their documentation done inside of 15 minutes. You send the patient to the emergency department. Those emergency department nurses are extremely busy. So they'll say, ah, we'll send it up to the floor and let the floor nurses do it. And they've got this head-to-toe assessment to go through that's got 
20 million lines in it that has to be done. And so it falls then to case management who are really looking at how do I get this patient back to a skilled nursing facility so that we can make beds for the next patients who are backing up in the emergency department. So I don't hear anybody excited about collecting the social determinants of health. Now the ambulatory case managers, they are devoted to this and they do a really good job at it, but that's going to be for a very select patient population, particularly the ones that are already sick and high value uh, readmitters. Well, we want to head that off. We want to catch that before it happens. So that means you got to get the data in before it happens. I'm not sure we're great at that in healthcare. The next article also out of Healthcare IT News, this one by Bill Sawicki, May 29th, Tech Optimization, Making Quality and Safety Integral to Clinical Processes. The gist of this article is they're suggesting that we should merge our risk management data set with our clinical EHR data set to get new insights into safety issues. Because right now, most safety issues are self-reported. Of all the events that probably happen in a healthcare system, only 5% of them are self-reported. And so I wonder in your health system, if you had a patient who gets a colonoscopy and gets a polyp removed, and three days later, 10 days later, has a lower GI bleed, is that considered a safety event in your hospital? Would you be self-reporting that? If a patient has a hypoglycemic event on the floor, is that always reported as a safety event? What if the sugar reading is 70 and the patient says they're a little shaky and a little sweaty? Is that enough? It's subjective. So I think it's really interesting, that concept of combining the risk management software and the clinical software into a data set to say, what is going on? How can we find things that would have been hidden to us otherwise? Now, most systems will tell you they do not let anything touch their risk management software. They have an absolute firewall in between that software and anything else because they're worried about the legal discovery process. They don't want anyone getting into the peer review process and uncovering what is the good work that they do through those committees. So I think it's going to have to be de-identified and there's probably ways of making this data safe that we can do that safety analysis. I think the authors are right. There's good data that we can combine in the risk and clinical data sets. We just have to have the courage to do it and probably the analytic skill set to do that as well. The next article out of Healthcare IT News from Mike Milliard, May 29th, AI is helping reinvent clinical decision support, unlock COVID-19 insights at Mayo Clinic. And this is from Dr. John Halamka, and I'm sorry if I said your name wrong, John, who is in charge of their artificial intelligence program there at Mayo. And they have a major program. Do not try to recreate this program at home. This is nothing that any of us will have the funding to do. But what he goes on to describe is that there's different types of artificial intelligence. There was the old artificial intelligence, and he describes it as, hey, think Deep Blue, the chess-playing computer from IBM that beat Gary uh, Kasparov in 1996. And it's using some old-school artificial intelligence where they really, they taught it the rules of chess and then had it watch and learn from millions and millions and millions of games of actual games of chess. The new AI he's describing as 
something more similar to what um, the computer that beat Go, the AlphaGo, uh, developed by Google's DeepMind Technologies. And in that case, what they did is they taught the AI the rules, and then it taught itself to become a master. And that's just a subtle difference. But with that kind of technology, he's talking about what if we took all of our pathology slides and was able to have an artificial intelligence tool analyze them, the learnings that would come from that if we could digitize all of those slides. And it's already being done in radiology and it's done in dermatology. I haven't heard of anyone tackling it on pathology at the scale of which they're talking about here because I'm hearing him say they want to digitize their entire pathology set. The memory requirements for that alone has to be mind-boggling. He goes on to say with their artificial intelligence at Mayo that they have newly developed machine learning algorithms that can diagnose atrial fibrillation, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and low ejection fraction from telemetry strips, which typically requires invasive procedures and hospital stays to get at some of that information. So really advanced stuff with just some newer learning artificial intelligence. I'm not sure I completely understand the artificial intelligence uh, subtleties between the old models and new models, but I, I think I know enough to walk away from saying, okay, they're training these computers differently. It's still machine learning, but perhaps we do get a better result through this. This one's out of EHR Intelligence. Epic Systems takes the leap to remote virtual EHR implementation by Christopher Jason, May 27th. Valley Children's Healthcare, which provides care for over 1.4 million children in the Madera County area of California, has completed a remote virtual EHR implementation with Epic. This is the EHR vendor's first virtual EHR implementation. I guess because of COVID, they weren't willing to send their people out there. They needed to go live, so they did it remotely. Cerner also did this with a rural hospital also successfully. Prior to the official go live, Valley Children's EHR users participated in webinars, virtual support chat rooms, and one-on-one -on -one virtual sessions to prepare. So I think that line was important. This wasn't just, oh, we're going to go live and do it the normal way, and we'll just be remote if you need us. I suspect that they had very engaged providers and nurses learning that EHR ahead of time, hopefully even practicing in play environments to get their feet wet so that on the day of go live that at the elbow support is not going to be there in the way it normally is. Maybe this is the new normal. Maybe we should continue this. Why do we need the expense of having the EHR vendors at our sites potentially bringing in illness and perhaps not adding significant value if it can be done remotely. So I'll, I'll throw that challenge out there. Maybe the way we do go lives has completely changed. Uh, final lines here from the article, according to the vendors and the health system, despite the lack of in-person support staff at the hospital, uh, despite the lack of in-person support staff at the hospital, the implementation went live without an issue and it went on as if the vendors were on site and both Epic and Valley Children's Healthcare maintained that. So, which I think is important. If it just came out of Epic, I don't know that you could trust it completely, but supposedly the hospital said it as well.
the next two articles. Well, let's just do this last one here from Kaiser. This is from the Kaiser Foundation, and it's May 11th, 2020. And they have a list of, I think it's about six bullet points of the key takeaways from of telemedicine. And they talk about the change in the laws. And there's a line or two here I think is important. They say, Many commercial insurers have voluntarily addressed telemedicine in their response to COVID-19, focusing on reducing or eliminating cost sharing, broadening coverage of telemedicine, expanding in-network telemedicine providers. The next line, a number of gaps remain in ensuring access to telemedicine during the COVID-19 pandemic. Service parity and payment parity for telehealth across all insurers would help increase access for patients and incentivize providers to offer those services, though it would also increase spending. Gaps in technology access and use among some groups of patients may also be a concern. It remains unclear if the U.S. will sustain this. So I don't know about you, but there's definitely a segment of the population in our area that's having trouble getting access to telehealth. And what's kind of playing out here is who's going to pay for that? Is, does it make sense to have someone drive an hour and a half to do a wound check? when they could do that by telehealth and now the patients are getting more comfortable they want to do it but they may not have the technology to do it perhaps they have the cell phone but they don't have the broadband or the cellular access so i've been talking to some of the vendors in our area who provide the high-speed internet access and for one of them that lays fiber down it's a hundred thousand dollars per mile and I can get, that's going to be really expensive for them to bring broadband out to all parts of our area. The cell phone carriers, though, it should be easier for them. And they wouldn't get into the details of what it would cost to cover an area, but mostly said, we're the best, we have great coverage, and that they really weren't willing to engage. There are winners and losers of this COVID-19 pandemic. And the losers are on the hospital side and the providers who had empty hospitals and were unable to do procedures and things that sustain those hospitals took a huge financial hit. And when they take that financial hit, there's someone else out there that's going to be winning. And that's going to be the payers. And so if the payers want us to take care of their patients and do so in a way that's effective at lowering the cost of care, they need to make sure their members have the tools to engage with our health system. So I believe, this is Mark's world, by the way, and that's total fantasy land, but that the health insurers should be in making sure that their members can access health care. That's their responsibility. They are the deep pockets at the moment. I also think that they have some leverage to use up against the cell phone carriers and broadband carriers, as should the government put some pressure on these people to, hey, you guys have good profits, you see a huge spike in the use of your data services since the COVID-19 outbreak, get out there and get these tools into the hands of the poor and the people who are, live just too far away from major infrastructure. That is their responsibility. And that's my two cents. I think I'll stop on that rant. It was a good rant. So let's wrap there for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. 
You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you our next episode. Thank you.